Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Hindley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make it fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you are the generous sort, you can be like Garrett, Ben, Jerry, Janet, Robin, and John. Support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation. This helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Cassandra Ford. Dr. Ford is an evolutionary biologist who will be starting as an assistant professor in the Fisheries, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology Department at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities in fall 2023. Her work examines how head and skull shape relates to diet and habitat occupancy and how these patterns have evolved over time. Her PhD and postdoctoral work largely focused on tropical freshwater fishes, but she is looking forward to expanding her research to the native fishes in the Midwest and Great Lakes. She will also be overseeing the ichthyology collection at the Bell Museum and assisting with outreach events to connect scientists with the public. Welcome to the podcast, Cassandra. Thank you so much for having me. I always like to start with people's backgrounds. So where did your interest in fish first begin? So I have kind of an interesting, I guess, uh, introduction to fish. I'm not the typical fish biologist who like went fishing all the time when I was mm-hmm. a kid. I actually didn't really go fishing at all, despite uh, I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. So I was actually on the water, but I just never really did the whole fishing thing. I actually got interested in fish during my undergraduate time at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. I did research in a neuroscience lab and we used zebra fish for our model systems. And so I got a whole, you know, education on fishes, even if it was kind of one single species there. But I honestly fell in love with them and then realized how many fish species there are and was like, I could study anything that I want to. And it really opened my eyes and got me really excited about studying fish. That's awesome. So how did that interest in fish translate specifically to your interest in school morphology? When I decided to do my PhD, uh, I went into a lab that is primarily focused on tropical electric fish. So electric fish that are found in South America and Africa. And I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to study about them yet. All I knew was that It was really cool that there were two kind of independent groups of electric fish, and I wanted to know more about how and why that happened. And then I did some CT scanning, so kind of like a tabletop cat scanner for, not for humans because it's too small, but um, for (laughs) organisms, so like for fish, mammals, birds, that kind of thing. My lab mates and I did some CT scans of these fish. And honestly, their head shapes, like their skull shapes are so weird that my interest was immediately like zoned in on that one thing. I was like, this is what I want to study. This is what I want to (laughs) do. Like, I want to figure out what is going on here. There are fish in this, in these two groups that have incredibly long faces, ones that have really short faces and everywhere in between with various amounts of teeth and I wanted to know kind of how that happened, why that happened, and if there are any, you know, correlations with things like diet and where they live in terms of what these fish look like. Yeah, that's so cool. It's Skull shape is never something I think a lot about because there's so many cool looking fishes, but I never really think to like consider what's under the surface. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> most definitely. Uh, I think most people don't think about their skull, but when I see like a cool fish or yeah. a cool organism, my 
strangely, like my first thought is strangely, I wonder what's underneath that. (laughs) What does their skull look like? (laughs) Awesome. So why is, and this might be a really obvious question, but just for me not knowing much about it, why is studying like craniofacial or skull morphology important? Well, what we found, especially in this group, but honestly across the majority of organisms, is that the skull is kind of the primary part of the organism that will dictate how and what an organism will eat. So if we think about the difference between like a cow or a lion and look at, think about like what's underneath just their head, looking at that skull, we have vastly different skulls under there. We have the lion that has these really robust teeth and these really strong jaws that can lock onto prey. Whereas the cows have these really long, kind of docile looking skulls that have these flat teeth that they use for crushing Mm -hmm. the grasses and the plants that they're trying to eat. So those are kind of some extreme examples. But honestly, we have a lot of diversity even within fishes in terms of what these head and skull shapes look like. And if we don't have ecological information for these fish kind of readily available, Studying their skulls can give us some insights into what we think these fish are eating. And if those prey items are going to continue to be available, especially through the lens of climate change. So it's it seems like it'd be fairly useful for data-poor species. Then. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Very cool. So you kind of touched on this before with the CT scanning, but are there any other methods used to compare skull morphology? Is it mainly that CT scan? I do a lot of CT scanning and that allows me to look at like the bones underneath the skin. A lot of people also do things like dissection or um, a really cool method called clearing and staining. Mm -hmm. So you use a combination of chemicals in a very specific order and it will take away, it'll make the skin translucent so you can see underneath the skin and see the muscles and the bones and the ligaments and they're in different colors. It's the coolest thing ever. And there are some really cool images. People make it into photographs and artwork and stuff because it's so pretty. So that's another way that you can look at some of the things that I study. But I primarily use CT scans because it's a lot of upfront cost in terms of getting the CT scanner. But once you have it, you can CT scan pretty much anything and that data can live on a hard drive and be shared anywhere. There are actually some online repositories that have just open access CT scans. So anyone, including people who live in the places where these fish are from, can have access to the data as well. Oh, that's so cool. Man, that's really wild to think about, like skin becoming translucent in the muscles. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it's really cool. Like <laughs> you need to look it up if you haven't yeah. seen it before. It's really cool. <laughs> that is so awesome. So I was struggling a bit when I was going through your CV because I would have would love to just have hours and hours for you to talk about like all of your research and everything, <laughs> but I want to be cognizant of your time. <laughs> so is there any paper or recent project or even like work from your PhD or postdoc that you'd be really excited to share about? Definitely. So I have a couple of kind of more recent projects that are pretty cool. So the first one is my PhD, some of my PhD work. So looking at those two groups of electric fish, predominantly looking at that craniofacial morphology. So looking at their skulls. Like I said, there are some fish that have really, really long skulls and ones that had shorter ones. And 
everywhere in between. So what I wanted to figure out was how similar are these fish in terms of their skull morphology? So there are a couple of very specific species that have what are coined as like elephant nose snouts. So their mouths kind of point downwards and it looks like an elephant trunk. It's really weird looking, but there are species in both of these groups that have that morphology. Now we know through genetic work that these are two independent groups and it ends up being that they came up with the same solution independently. Mm -hmm. So it's a concept called convergent evolution. So it's not that the same group, like that they're both the same group. They are two independent groups and they've come up with the same conclusion. I wanted to figure out how, try to quantify how similar these particular morphologies are. So I used the CT scans and then I used a method called geometric morphometrics. So you are able to quantify shape by placing landmarks or dots on important points of the skull. And you try to put them on the same exact points in the same order across all of these fish. So you can tell how long the snout is or how short the snout is, how big the brain case is, things like that by looking at these shapes. And what I found was, even though there are species that have very, very similar external morphologies, the internal morphologies, the skulls underneath, are not the same. So even though there are species that both have these elongated, like elephant trunk-like snouts, they're actually building those snouts in different ways. So one of them is elongating a different bone than the other to get those longer faces. So that was really, really cool to find that, yeah, they're coming up with the same conclusion, but it's Mm -hmm. not exactly the same. It's like a similar conclusion. (laughs) And so that was a super cool finding that we were not really expecting to see. And from that stemmed the other paper that recently came out where we actually detail the different methods that you can use for morphological analysis. So I talk about things like CT scanning and clearing and staining and dissection and the pros and cons and how that can help us get kind of a holistic look at morphology, particularly in evolutionary biology. Yeah, that is so cool. Thank you. (laughs) So I've looked into like eco-evolutionary simulation models a little bit for my own work. And it's like the idea of like more rapid evolution. So I'm curious, do you have an understanding of like how long it takes for skulls to actually make these changes? Oh, right. So it totally is dependent on the species and group. Okay. So an interesting finding that people have found is that there are different rates of evolution of the skull even within the same skull. So different bones will evolve at different rates and there are differences between different species and groups. So for the electric fish, they're actually fairly slowly evolving and both groups are about 150 million years old. So we're talking about long-term evolution here with some pretty drastic changes, um, but it's taken a long time for that to happen. Kind of a contrasting group would be African cichlids, which is another group that I've done a little bit of work on. And that the group that I studied at least is 15,000 years old. So a much shorter amount of time. We're not seeing the same extreme changes in morphology, but we're still seeing quite a bit of differences in skull shape. So that's telling us that there are other groups that are a lot faster at evolving those changes in skull shape. And that's influencing what they eat and how they eat it. Okay, cool. 
it's fun asking people about topics that just have very little knowledge about. Like, oh, no, so that's cool. the best part of science. Like we all get so specific in our yeah. little tiny area that we become quote unquote experts at. And it's it's really cool to talk to people who are studying completely different things than you and trying to see how that overlaps and yeah. how it can connect. Yeah, for sure. So you are starting a professor position at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities soon. So what topics are you hoping to cover with your new lab there? Yeah, I am honestly thrilled about this position. It is going to be an amazing opportunity. So I am going to continue a lot of my work on kind of evolutionary biology and kind of ecomorphology, I think is a good term to encompass some of the things that I study So I want to continue working on the tropical fish that I'm familiar with, particularly electric fish. They are like my first fish love. Um, (laughs) I keep coming back to them, but I definitely want to take a closer look at the local fish that are in Minnesota. So there are uh, so many lakes and streams and rivers in the state, and I cannot wait to do field work and go and collect fish and figure out what's there. I'll also be a part of the Bell Museum. So that's the Natural History Museum in St. Paul. And we have, we'll have collections, like just timelines of fish collections. So the museum is over a hundred years old. I think it's like 130 years old or more. Um, And we have fish that are that old in the collection. So we have time series of the same river was sampled every three to five years. And we have those fish So we can look at changes in biodiversity, look at changes in shape, and figure out how things are changing over time, especially with, you know, the buildup of urban areas and everything like that, and see how things have shifted there. So not only tropical fish, but also some of the more (laughs) local and temperate fish as well. But some of the same kinds of questions that I've been asking before. Yeah, that's so exciting. I don't know much about the work of a curator. So is that Will you be mainly like behind the scenes or do you create exhibits for the museum or how does that aspect of your work look like? Yeah, so it's a little bit of both. So the kind of day-to-day job that I'll be in charge of is ensuring that that collection is kept up. So a lot of the fish that we keep are stored in jars of ethanol. So you need to make sure that the jars are in good shape and you're not losing ethanol. So making sure that the fish are preserved properly, but also making sure that we have detailed records of what's there. There are other scientists who will want to borrow some of the specimens that we have for their own work. So we'll handle things like loans and returns And then I will also be uh, very closely tied to the bell itself. So my office will be in actually a separate building with the fish collection. But then the Bell Museum has its own standing structure with not only some kind of permanent exhibits, but they do do some temporary ones that pass through as well. So I'll work with the director there and the other people who are creating those exhibits and doing different events for the public and for kids uh, throughout the year. So I'll be doing a lot of outreach over there. I'm very excited about it. Um, But I'll also be doing the day-to-day stuff that makes sure that we have a continuing record of the fish that are in Minnesota. Yeah, awesome. Since you're also working as a curator, do you have teaching responsibilities as well? Or is that taken over with the curator position? So I'll have 
compared to other professors, I'll have a reduced teaching load. Okay. So most te- most professors teach a couple of classes per semester, or at least over the course of a year. And I will be in charge of teaching ichthyology, the fish class, in the fall. And then I'll also be doing a, a graduate seminar of some sort most springs as well. But that'll be my only teaching requirement. Oh, right on. Yeah. That's awesome. I get to teach the fish class. Yeah. I'm so excited. <laughs> the best class there is. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. I'm sure lots of people are going to be interested in joining your lab. So, but I, I'm assuming you won't be taking students on right away. So where should students go if they'd like to work with you? Yeah. So I have a website, CassandraFord.com. So K-A-S-S-A-N-D-R-A-F-O-R-D.com. You can also find me on Twitter at CassTheFish, K A S S. T-H-E-F-I-S-H. <laughs> and I have a, kind of a website page that details that I'm expecting to take on students in fall 2024, it looks like. And at that point, it might be a couple of master students. I haven't entirely figured out how many students I want to take on initially because I don't want to be overwhelmed. And I want to make sure that the lab is settled and up and running before taking on those additional responsibilities to make sure that my students are successful. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I'm very, very excited to have students come in and help me build the research program and do some work on especially the native Minnesota fish. Awesome. Um, one question I really like to ask people because I think it's not a good reminder that we are people outside of being scientists as well. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, what hobbies and interests do you have outside of your work? Well, I'm definitely more of an introvert than an extrovert in terms of day-to-day activities. So I love reading. I'm a fantasy reader, 100%, uh, the least realistic, <laughs> the better. I love dragons. That's fantastic. Nice. And honestly, I'm also obsessed with Taylor Swift. I am a Swifty and I'm going to see her in Philadelphia next weekend. <laughs> and I cannot wait. So yeah, I do a lot of listening to vinyl records um, and reading and hanging out with my cat. Yeah. That's awesome. And finding new restaurants too. Yeah. Food is good. Food is Do you good. have a favorite book or favorite book series? Oh, no. I can't shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I am reading a really good book right now. Um, It's called The Blood Trials. Uh, So fantasy meets sci-fi with a very diverse cast. And it's it's very, very good. Oh, awesome. I'll have to look it up. I'm always searching for new book recs. (laughs) That was just a selfish question. (laughs) Awesome. Well, that brings us to the close of what we call the tough part of the interview and to our final five questions, which is a group of questions we ask each of the guests that come on the show. The first one is, what is your favorite fish? My favorite fish is an electric fish. It is Sternocorhynchus hagedorne, and it is one of the elephant trunk snout fishes. So it's got that long face and long mouth, um, and it is one of the dorkiest looking fishes that I have ever seen in my life, and I absolutely love it. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? Oh, I have so many. Um, I think that probably my favorite memory would be getting to go and do field work in the Amazon. So I went to Peru and did field work there to collect our electric fish. And it was 
a humbling experience, um, but it was so cool and so much fun. And yeah, I'm really hoping to get back out there. That's awesome. What, what does the field work look like for that? So we were based in Iquitos, Peru, and took fishing boats out with local fishermen every single day. And their boats are kind of like long, skinny canoes, a little skinnier than our average canoe would be, but wider than a kayak, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they have lawnmower motors on the back attached to a metal pipe with a spoke with a wheel on it. Um, and so they use that to chug you around the river. And then they have gigantic nets that they put in between two of those boats and you go down the river picking up fish and leaves and tree branches. <laughs> and then they do a really cool maneuver to get themselves around each other so they can pull the net up between the two boats. And then you do not stick your hand into the net immediately because there are catfish that have spines, venomous spines on them. So you wait until most of the water has drained off and then you use gloves to pull the vegetation out so you can identify the catfish before they poke you in the hand. (laughs) Harshly. I learned that lesson very quickly. Very quickly. (laughs) Oh, that sounds cool. Not not, not the getting poked in the hand. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there are perils to field work everywhere. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> this may be an easier question for you than most, but what is your dream job and or location? Honestly, I'm thrilled about this new job that I'm about to start. Um, it combines most of the things that I really wanted in a career in terms of the focus on research and a little bit of teaching thrown in there, but also the outreach and curation I'm from the Midwest originally. I grew up in Wisconsin, and so I'm thrilled to go back. It's really going to be an amazing, amazing time. Yeah, awesome. All right. If money was not an issue, what is one project you would like to work on? I really want to do some extensive field work in South America and Africa, and especially connect with a lot of the universities that are in Um, some of those areas so I can make sure that the local people have equal opportunity and access to research experiences. So there are a couple of countries that I'm very intrigued to go and visit, and there are already collaborators there that I'm hoping to work with in order to make sure that we're doing science the right way. Yeah, absolutely. Our last question is if there's one point or principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I would say that evolution is not linear. There is no goal (laughs) or like end game for it. So evolution is just trying its best and it's a little random and that's what we're stuck with. But it makes things very interesting. (laughs) Awesome. Oh man, that was such a good one. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was so nice to hear more about your work and learn about skull morphology and all that. Um, I think we already covered this, but I'll just ask one more time just to double check. For people that want to find out more information or get a hold of you, is reaching your website and social media, is that the best way to do that? Definitely. My email is also the same as my Twitter handle at gmail.com. So website or Twitter, probably the best ways to go. (laughs) Perfect. Great. I will link those in our show notes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was such fun. (laughs) 
good. Uh, yeah, I'm so happy you can make it. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at KB Hindley on Twitter. And the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fisheries Pod. Or send us an email to feedback at fisheriespodcast.com. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or the fisheriespodcast.com. Don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinle. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, evolution is not linear. Bye.